Welcome to season two of the Change the World podcast. This season, I'm going to be speaking not only with nonprofit founders, but with other nonprofit leaders, such as fundraising experts, communications executives, and board members. We'll be addressing some of the big issues facing Jewish nonprofits today and brainstorming ways that we can come together to address them. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. I have Joseph Gittler with me. He is the founder and chairman of Leket Israel. Joseph, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Pleasure. So let's dive right in. Tell me a little bit about yourself, about your background, and how you got into the nonprofit world. Okay. So I, uh, I don't sound Israeli, but I do live in Israel. But I do live in Ranana, which is not the best place to get an Israeli accent. I grew up in New York, uh, Washington Heights, New York, Teaneck, New Jersey, Riverdale, New York, after I got married to my wife, Leela, who's from Toronto. Grew up a very, I would say, a typical modern Orthodox Jewish background, Jewish day schools, high schools, Yeshiva University. Had a very brief legal career before we made Aliyah, 10 months, and happily living in Israel for the past 22 years. I think uh, my involvement in, in the nonprofit world would have happened differently if we hadn't moved to Israel. I'm sure I would have gotten involved like many of us do in the day school. I would have sent my children to the high school, who knows, the synagogue, the mikvah, whatever it may be. And that probably would have been, and that's a wonderful way to help the community. But by coming to Israel, A, even right after my Aliyah, I got involved in the type of charities that maybe religious Jews don't have the time to get involved in, more secular causes whether it be the local hospital, which we all utilize, but maybe you don't have the time to get involved with or the, or the money because you're committed elsewhere. And then about three years after moving, I was working in a family business here and I just got very concerned by the wage gaps, by the struggles I was hearing coming from so many Israelis. Unfortunately, that hasn't changed much, whether it be here or in the United States. And on the other hand, like uh, many of the fortunate few, seeing the staggering amount of food that was getting wasted, whether it was from hotels or weddings, barn bat mitzvahs we were going to. And I made the lucky decision to say, talk is cheap. Let's see if I can do something about it. And with very little thought, I would say mostly a lark, a three-month sort of sabbatical has continued for 19 years. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was... It was happenstance. It was it was the right decision for the right time. And we found a niche, which is surprising because I'm sure many of the viewers here may be somewhat familiar with the Israeli nonprofit scene. It's very robust. And it's uh, chasing after everyone's dollars or shekels, depending where you are. And so to find something so basic, a food bank, which is so typical in the United States in every major city in the United States was surprising when I discovered in Israel that that really didn't exist. There were a myriad of charities feeding the poor, but no one who was just centralizing the rescue and redistribution of safe, nutritious, healthy food and making sure it got to those same agencies. Wow. So tell me how it looked when the organization started, what the services were and what the scope was and what it looks like today. Okay, so when we started, it was me and my Aliyah station wagon, which generally, if you're aware, you get a tax break for the first car you buy in Israel. You wouldn't typically use that car 
for the transportation of cooked meals and the spills and smells that go with that. So it was my car, our refrigerator in our house for the first few months. That moved on relatively quickly to the same car, but then multiple refrigerators in the garage. And then things moved quickly, I would say, after the first six months, our first small warehouse, our first refrigerated truck. Maybe in the first six months, we delivered to 10 nonprofits in the area around where I live, Rainana, Kfar Saba, Herzliya. Pickups were mostly in that area for the first few months. And then we started to recruit volunteers. And then within a year, maybe we even had a mini strategic plan. And we've really just gone from strength to strength. That's the story of Leckett. Sure, we've had challenges like everyone does, but overall, been a pretty smooth run as things go. Today, we're an organization that has 120 employees. Wow. Uh, we have a budget of, I'd say, about $24 million. That's cash. That's what we're going to spend this year on salaries, on gas. Unfortunately, the inflation is killing us. Logistics, renting our warehouse, renting our office, insurance, leasing trucks, buying trucks, marketing, all the things people don't like, uh, marketing, fundraising, all that stuff. More important, though, of course, is is what we do with that money and what our staff does and our 40,000 plus volunteers a year. And I'm sure many people who are watching this have have picked fruits or vegetables with Leckett or have worked in our warehouse. And if not, they're, of course, all welcome. Uh, With that, we will this year probably rescue about $100 million worth of food. About 90% of that by volume being rescued fruits and vegetables coming from farmers, packing houses, kibbutzim, some picked by volunteers, some picked by our staff, some already picked by farmers, and for a whole variety of reasons like ugly fruits and vegetables, if you've heard that term, low market price, acts of God, order cancellations, Russia, you name it. Uh, There are just myriad of crops left in the fields. So that's part of what we do and the biggest part of what we do. And then what we're maybe better known for in the beginning of our journey was the work we do with the army and hotels, corporate cafeterias, event halls, to make sure that their excess meals don't just get thrown out, which is just a horrible crime, in my opinion, and one that unfortunately in many countries in the world, everyone's too scared to do, even if they can figure out safe way to do it. They're just scared of getting sued. And so they just say, who needs the trouble? Let's just dump it. Wow. So that's incredible how you've grown. I'm really intrigued specifically by what you mentioned about how after about a year, you had what you called a mini strategic plan. So (laughs) tell me what that looks like. And I'll tell you why I'm asking, because I have found most founders that I interview, they kind of look back and they can't even believe, they don't even know where it happened, where it scaled. It didn't seem intentional. It was almost by accident. The need kind of took on a life of its own. So I just am so excited by someone who seemed to have done it intentionally. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? <laughs> yes, I wouldn't say the, be- the beginning was intentional, but the longer term certainly was. And I never thought it would take off so quickly. But I think once I saw how quickly it was taking off, so I wanted to have a little plan in place. And it was really more of a logistical plan. There wasn't some... It wasn't a fundraising plan per se. The fundraising plan was, you know, people always ask me, how did you learn how to fundraise? Go out and do it. You have no choice. You got to pay your bills. You know, it's like, uh, you know, think of our grandparents' generation, right? They came, 
to America or Canada. They had no choice. They had no money. So they had to figure it out. You know, our, our generation may be a little less so. And, uh, you know, we'll, well, the votes aren't in yet. It really, for me, you know, it was, it was gathering uh, some people that I trust and putting them around the table and trying to talk through some of the issues and figuring out, you know, I'm not a financial person per se, figuring out, you know, what the numbers were going to look like, what kind of money we would need to bring in, think about expansion, where would be the right places to go. A lot of it was also, a lot of the strategy was about, you know, who are we trying, who are we trying to serve? Where are they? How quickly do we go national or do we stick locally? Because those were all big, big, big ticket items financially for us. And I'm not going to say everything went according to plan. I think that's never the case. And we've had many plans since then. Some pieces have worked, some pieces haven't worked, but overall, it's been pretty smooth. In those days also, we didn't really, our board was, you know, Joseph Gittler and two friends of his, because that's how you, when you start and you have a concept, you don't want people getting in your way in the beginning. But within three, four years of Let Get Starting, we started to bring in serious board members with serious credentials. I always say the only reason I get invited to the board meetings is because I started the organization <laughs> because I am no way on the level of the people who are sitting around the table now professionally and uh, from their accomplishments. And, and that's been good because, you know, over the years we have had challenges and issues that have come up that are, I know how to organize food pickups. I know how to go out and pitch a foundation on giving us money, you know, but how often have we rented a distribution center? Once, twice. It's like going to the mechanic. You know, I don't, whatever the mechanic tells me is what I do. So to bring, we needed to bring people with expertise in different areas around the table, accounting, law, just to keep an eye on us and to provide advice. And so today we have a wonderful board in Israel, very hardworking, very much in tune with what we're trying to accomplish. And of course, we have all those friends of organizations in America, Canada, UK, et cetera, who help us out in a myriad of other ways. Amazing. So what would you say would be looking back now, you know, over the growth of the last 19 years, what would you say was the biggest challenge that you faced and would you have anticipated it? Great question. So look, if you had asked me that question before COVID, I might answer differently. And if you'd asked me that question before the inflation that we've seen over the last six months, I might have answered differently. COVID turned out to be an operational challenge because our just everything we do changed overnight. And we thought the sky was falling, certainly financially, but it turned out to be the opposite. The rich got richer and they gave big. And so that could actually, our budget grew by about 50% over the last two years and our output grew by over 100%. So it was a challenge operationally, but it turned out to be a great win. 2022, and I think you're going to hear this from a lot of the charities that you talk to or work with, it's scary out there. Inflation plus a stock market crash plus general economic feeling is definitely leading to a downturn in donations. And I think the biggest problem in the charity world, at least that I'm seeing in the biggest way since I started, but certainly since 2008, is when charities need to not just tread water, but to actually grow is when it's hardest for us to do that because it happens at a time of economic difficulty. And so the people who can make that growth happen maybe aren't feeling as flush as they might have a year ago. Right? People made a lot of money, the fortunate in the stock market. And even if your portfolio is up 100% over the last two years, 
and now it's only down 25%. You've made a lot of money if you look at it. You're still not feeling as good as you were a few months ago. And that is going to impact your giving, no ifs, ands, or buts. And so we're feeling it and other charities are going to feel it. And so this is a problem in general in the social service world and one that charities need to think about how to solve. And we're thinking about ways we're a little late maybe for this one, but we're going to do our best and we're going to dig into our reserves, which is something I recommend every charity that's able to, to, to try to build up reserves. And we will dig into our reserves to a point because this is what we exist for. I don't exist. I'm not a bank. Okay. And so if, if we had, we didn't, but let's say we had six months of reserves and we know we're going to finish the year based on our projections with three months of reserves. This is when you do it. You do it when times are tough because at the end of the day, however difficult it is for Leckett and our budget, it's much worse for the 250,000 Israelis that we serve. They dream of having a stock portfolio, right? They don't even know what that is. And so as much as we're struggling and our, and our funders are struggling, the people we're serving are in a much worse place than we are. That's very true. Do you recommend, if you're in a situation where you are tapping into the reserves you set aside for a rainy day, do you recommend cutting budgets? And if so, like which department would you cut? Mm. Or do you say okay, just so keep going and, and it will all resolve itself? It's a big organization with a lot of money flowing through it. So you can imagine we have a very professional senior staff, which is always looking at our income and our expenses. And we have, you know, budget A, budget B, budget C. We have that every year, even when we're feeling good. We're always ready. At this point, six months into the year, we're going full throttle still. But that can change in a moment's notice. And of course, we all know that when you cut in a charity, you know, the last thing you ever want to cut is what you exist for, right? You never want to cut trucks, gas, picking up food, delivering food to the poor. That's the last thing. If that goes, then we might as well shut down. Okay, so we will do everything in our power. And, and I'm not, this is not, a, this is not a, a, a cry from the dark. This is just reality as of today. For all I know after this, someone's watching it, calls me and says, I'm sending a million dollars to Lekka. I don't know. And, and then I'll call you back and say, thank you. And it was, you have great people watching this. And, and then we, we will be less concerned. Either way, no matter what, it's always good to be on top of your budget. So, of course, the, the, the likely answer is you cut those things that are certainly not luxuries, but that people look at as luxuries or the kind of things that poor charities don't do, the marketing, the events. Of course, the flip side to that is if you don't do that, are you going to bring in money? But I don't have answers to Long any of those term things. Long-term versus short-term, right? Yeah, and, and you got to spend money. We've learned over the years, but but we spend money smartly, and we're always testing the waters. And I think for us, what's going to keep us going, and hopefully we'll bring in all the budget we need, is just our team working hard and doing as many one-on-one -on -one meetings. That's what brings in the best results for Leckett. We have campaigns. We have tens of thousands of donors a year, but the bigger bucks come in from just sitting one-on-one -on -one and telling people the story of what we do. And, you know, if there's, there's no secret. The secret to fundraising is getting your supporters passionate enough about your work that they don't just support you. But when you say, can you make an introduction? Don't overdo it. Don't say 10 introductions. An introduction here or there for me that if you can get a small percentage of the people to say yes, then you should be on in a good place. I love that. I think every founder should have that hanging on their wall because that's, that's very good <laughs> advice.
I think people, you know, in the nonprofit space, they get lost sometimes in like the nitty gritty or the, the micro details, but it really is that you need to bring people on. You need to just share with them and communicate with them. And I think that's, that's where the bottom line ends. So a lot has evolved in the last few years. I mean, especially in the nonprofit world between COVID and inflation and Ukraine and everybody's feeling it. What do you think is changing and will change over the next, let's say three to five years because of how the world has evolved of late? Wow, that's a great question. Look, I think there's definitely, without a change, definitely just a general concern about, well, I'll give you, it's funny, before we, before we started this conversation, I read a little bit of the Giving USA 2021 report. And what it spoke about, the, the key for me, was actually giving was up in the United States in 2021, but it didn't keep up with inflation. Okay, so that, I think, is going to be a big concern. If inflation continues over the next couple of years, even if people dig deeper into their pockets, even if they understand maybe 5% is not enough for my foundation, let's get it up to 7% or 8% so more funds flow in, it's no different than your own finances. If your income doesn't keep up with inflation, you're falling behind. So I'm hoping that those who have will understand that that's an issue and they're going to need to, if inflation is going up, their giving is going to need to react to inflation. I think that's one um, big issue. In Israel specifically, uh, the party may be over a little bit for technology, not completely. There are still companies raising big money, but you know many of the Israeli companies that went public, their shares are not doing well. That's going to impact the philanthropic Israeli work. And we do raise, we raise a good percentage of our budget in Israel. We have more donors in Israel than we do overseas. And we're very proud of that. We work hard. The numbers are smaller, but there's plenty of money in this country. We, we're very happy to have the support and we need the support from the diaspora. And so that could impact Israeli giving just in, in general. And I'd say the other big piece for us is, is, again, it's in Israel specific, and that is cost of housing. I feel like when I go to America and I sit with my friends, everyone talks about the cost of tuition at day schools, right? That's all anyone talks about, Okay. Uh, how much? My, I have a brother in Woodmere, right? How much does Hafter cost? Uh, how much does Mariah? I went to the Mariah School of Anglo. Right, a lot. He has four kids there, and so, and in Israel, the big discussion when you talk to people, right? We don't talk about the cost of schools because basically that that's including your taxes or or medical. That's also a topic in the U.S. Here, everyone talks about the cost of housing, and it used to be about purchase, and now it's gone down a level. If we can say that where people are saying we can't even afford rent. Like it doesn't matter how far we go from Tel Aviv. It doesn't matter how far we go from Jerusalem. And so that may, that is going to be the defining issue in Israel, except for elections every two weeks over the next few years. And so if the government and cannot come up with a solution for that, and we know the solution, it's just more uh, housing being built, but unfortunately this year, just to give one number, we're going to break housing start records in Israel this year. 60,000 new units, homes, apartments are going to be built, which is very impressive, but it's still 40,000 short of what we need. And so we all want the population of Israel to grow. You know, we want immigrants. We want women to have a lot of babies. And that's great. And the population's growing. And it's one of the only countries in the world that population is growing. But... If people can't survive financially, it's going to be a crisis here. And that, of course, that impacts me because the people that we're trying to serve, if they're using more of their income 
to pay for housing, that's less money to have in their pockets for food or electricity or any of their other expenses. So, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting few years and hopefully the government together with private uh, developers and will work and the feds, the feds work with inflation will work. And then we can go back to la la land, which is where we were the past. Hard to believe COVID was a bit of la la land financially for a lot of people. Have you noticed any shifts in terms of the demographics of the people giving, the ages at which they're giving, or the ways at which they're either giving or want to be involved? Everything I've read about, let's say, the millennials that are kind of the strongest giving generation right now kind of indicates that they want to be more involved versus just like writing a check. Have you noticed that? I've read that also. And I'm not, we want people to be involved, but you know, how many people can we have involved, to be honest? Okay. So, we definitely have people involved, but it's we're not overwhelmed by thousands of our donors saying, I want more involvement. It would be nearly impossible for us. And of course, we can only also have a few difficult people involved. Too many difficult people makes things next to impossible. So you, if any of the difficult people are watching, you know who you are. But thankfully, our difficult people come through in big ways for like it when push comes to shop. So we don't just put up with them. A lot of them have made us better as an organization with the hard work they've put us through in order to get their financing, financing in place. You know, the big change, I would say, for, for the younger generations, just how they give, right? So if it used to be 90% checks, 5% bank transfers, 5% credit cards, today it's 80% credit cards, 10% checks, 10% bank transfers. So that, of course, changes the way we want to run our operation. We have to have much more robust systems in place, information systems in place, trying to make things as automated as possible. Of course, people react. We do a lot of campaigns on social media, on Facebook, email campaigns. And so we need a team to really keep up with that. That's a big change. I mean, when I started 19 years ago, it was the website. That was it. Website and a telephone number. And then I think we're on our fourth website since we started because technology has changed and the demands on on our, our website have changed. And then, of course, Facebook and Instagram and on and on and on. I help where I can, but thankfully a lot of that they do for me. So, um, so that that's the really the biggest change I've seen. Yeah, a lot, a lot definitely changes over almost two decades. So you have to really be ready oh. to call. <laughs> everything everything changes. And I'm, you know, I'm thankful I most of what I do hasn't changed that much since I gave up the reins, I'd say more than a decade ago of, of day-to-day management. You know, most of my time is just spent meeting people, talking to them, trying to convince them to support Leckett. Podcast this morning, I was in Yafo at I-24 doing an interview for one of their TV shows. I do a lot of that kind of stuff. That's, you know, our CEO says that's the best use of my time. So I, that sounds better. I want to keep, I want to keep them happy. So I, I go along. With <laughs> that's them. a good plan. So before we wrap up, I always like to ask everybody if they have a favorite story, something, you know, about something, your organization, the way that it affected or something you've encountered running your organization, just something that you'd like to share with our listeners. Sure. So Leckett is an interesting animal because we don't serve the poor directly. And so in all those stories, we often don't have have them or if we we don't chase after them either. But I always remember, I think it, it it's an important just a point to make when it comes to respect and how we treat the people we serve. And I always remember the first time we delivered to an Ethiopian organization and we delivered eggplants to them and they really... And these were relatively new uh, immigrants to Israel, and they had no clue what it was. Okay, like, you know, we had these round eggplants, and the kid, I don't know, one of the kids thought it was a soccer ball. 
you know, started kicking it around. And so, you know, what it said to me at the time was, of course, this is about providing, we, we take very seriously that we're providing healthy, nutritious food. We don't give out junk, not because we're against junk, because I don't want to use your dollars to pick up junk food. If, if a junk food company wants to give food to the poor, they can deliver it directly. I'm not using philanthropic dollars for that. I have no problem with it, but the money is limited and I want to use it for the right things. And so for me, whenever I think about that, I think about the fact that, you know, part of our mission is the right food to the right people at the right time within logistical limitations. But part of it also is teaching, not because we're imperialists who are trying to tell people you must eat this. You're now in Israel. Everyone loves eggplant in Israel, eat it. But, you know, this is healthy, nutritious food. And if we can teach people how to make it, how to cook it, find ways that fit with their culture to make it. Because we're in Israel. We have enough food to feed everyone. This is not, thank God, you know, it's just unfortunate hearing on NPR about what's going on in Ethiopia, where people, unfortunately, it's the worst drought in a thousand years in Ethiopia. And they're, they're you know, it's like going back to my youth. Uh, people there are at risk of starvation, millions and millions of Ethiopians. So thankfully, thank God in Israel, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the opposite. We're talking about the US, Canada, the UK, rich Western country with, with too much food to go around. And because of that, we waste with abandon. And so Israelis can all be fed healthy, nutritious food. And part of our job also is to teach them when they're unfamiliar with what we're providing, uh, how to utilize that food. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. If anybody wants to get in touch with you or the organization, where should they go? Okay, so me, real simple, Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, at leket, L-E-K-E-T, dot O-R-G, with any questions, with pleasure. Our website, leket.org, lots of information out there. If you're coming to Israel and you want to volunteer, you're a synagogue, you're a bar or bat mitzvah, you're an individual, just write to me. We have two to 300 people volunteering every day, and we certainly need help. Probably made that abundantly clear, maybe too clear. So don't be shy with that as well. And thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, or if you are a nonprofit leader who is interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help you, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at sivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com to subscribe to our mailing list.